But let's go back through just a couple of thoughts as we make our way down through, I think, about 30 slides. Uh, but again, much of it's review. And we're talking again about soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. And if you come away with anything, you have to come away with the very basic knowledge that God alone is our Savior. That's communicated Old Testament, New Testament. And that's kind of where we started with soteriology. Here's the Old Testament passage in Isaiah. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Again, the idea of deliverance. It's all over the Bible from beginning to end. He's the God who saves His people. Now, you shouldn't have to do a whole lot of work in the New Testament if you understand the Old Testament and see how God alone delivers His people. They're not offering help. He's not meeting them halfway. God always accomplishes the deliverance of His people from beginning to end. Okay? Walk into the New Testament. There's... Several passages could have gone to, but anyway, this one struck me. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's what we're talking about. And here's hopefully a few questions that you will recall. What is the motive for our salvation? What is it that has motivated God to save his people? His glory. Yeah, that's true. We'll deal with that Sunday. What are some other things that you could say? His character. His character. That's kind of where I was leaning. I don't know what you do with glory and character. Glory is difficult to define once you get looking at all the context, but I think it's one and the same. To say his, his purpose, the purpose is you know, for His glory. For His glory. We know that in Scripture, but His character goes back to His, his mercy. And there you go. His love. I like that. So basis is still character, purpose is glory. So again, you, there's passages we can go to. You'd want to lean toward the love of God, but when he communicates his character, he's full of mercy and grace and loving kindness and truth. So that motivates it. What is the basis for our salvation? What is our salvation based on? It has a foundation to it. <laughs> no. No. This is really the how did he do it? The cross. The cross. The atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the words that I just read to you. Without the substitutionary death of Christ, there is no salvation. He based all of our deliverance on what Jesus did on the cross. Okay? So we've talked about all these things. I'm just trying to bring it all together that in one question that you can get a grasp and answer. All right, so when we're dealing with the cross, we're dealing with the idea of atonement. I showed you last week or the week before, the word is never actually used in the New Testament. Atonement is only used in the Old Testament. Yet, all of these ideas that we worked on last week and many more ideas point to the idea of atonement so we can understand atonement based on all this work that we did last week even though he never uses the word okay Chris they may need help with seats
But when we started talking about atonement, I gave you three categories to consider. Uh, and they're basically, you're trying to take all the words that the Lord uses in the New Testament and kind of put them broadly into three categories so that you can see how all these are working. Uh, the first one was commercial, the buying and the selling of things. We saw that. Uh, the idea of appeasement and then the idea of relationship. And I'll break all three of them down for you. Uh, atonement in respect to the buying and selling of things. Agarazzo and Latruo. Agarazzo usually translated purchase. Latruo usually translated redeem. And so when we think about what Christ did for us on Calvary, he bought us or he redeemed us which implies a whole lot in regard to obedience. And I talked about this when we went through it. If someone bought you, they own you, and you walk in obedience to them, right? We have the idea of appeasement, halaskamai. This is where we get our word propitiation. Another super difficult word to understand without all this business going on. Uh, but what's the passage in... Isaiah 53 that points to the idea of appeasement. Uh, say it again. It was the will of the Lord, but what does one translation say? He was pleased to crush him. And, you know, not in a weird sense, it satisfied his wrath. And so the cross appeased the wrath of God in the sense that it is completely extinguished in regard to us. Now that's something you need to sit and think about a very long time on your own. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who was that that said, I think Tyler was telling me about uh, so-and-so's book or whatever on Romans 8, the greatest chapter in the Bible that we've yet to get to. And that's where it begins. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The wrath has been removed. There's none for you. That's really hard to get past without wanting to worship the Lord for what he's done for you, right? Here's the idea of appeasement. I didn't think it was expressed any better than in Luke 18 where the tax collector, who's supposed to be the dumb guy who doesn't know anything in respect to the Pharisee who knows everything, but according to Jesus, as he tells the parable, the tax collector stood a distance away, was unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but he was beating his breast saying, God, propitiate me, the sinner. And we translate that, be merciful, but he meant so much by that, right? Basically, the idea of atonement, atone for my sins. Now, I'll probably go back to this Sunday I didn't get to it. I think Nathan and Abby both questioned me. Why didn't you go to, is it, is it Psalms 32? Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions have been covered. They're like, why don't you go to Psalm 32? I was like, there's only so much you can talk about in 45 minutes. But this is the idea, right? This is the idea that this tax collector understood how blessed it is to be a man whom the Lord has forgiven, whose sins have been covered. So he's asking to be that guy. All right, so we come to this last category, and it is a wonderful category. It gives you a lot to think about as well. Really, all three of these categories gives you a great deal to worship the Lord about. But uh, nonetheless, uh, change of relationship, katalasso, usually 
translated reconcile. So it's the idea, and you'll see this in the text, it's the idea of going from enemies, just like I read those words, to being made the friend of God. Um, it's not like the marriage relationship. Hopefully in the marriage relationship, you don't buy them the ring and they go from despising and hating you to loving you and marrying you, okay? Really didn't happen that way at all. So it's unlike, really, I struggle to find any sort of illustration like this. And this is solely the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. We literally go from the enemies of God, violating and rebelling against the law of God, to being adopted into His family as the children of God, receiving full privileges. We share in the glory of Christ. And if you can think of a human analogy for that, you're doing a lot better than I am. I mean, this is the most extraordinary difference between who we were and who we are now in Christ. And it was all accomplished solely by God. He's the one that sought us. He's the one that bought us. He's the one that reconciled us to Himself. He made us right with Him, and then He brings us into the family and gives us everything in His Son. It's just absolutely absurd. It's extravagant grace. But when you run across those rough passages in the text, it tells you to forgive and reconcile, and you don't want to do that. You're not wanting to do the very thing that God has done for you. And that's why you find some really difficult passages in the text about people who are unwilling to forgive. Jesus, in fact, tells a parable. They will not be forgiven. And you have to wrestle with the reality of that, right? But the reason is, I, I, this is exactly what the cross accomplished for you. It not only forgave you, but it swept you up into the love of God. And so as Christians, there's no better way... <coughs> than to paint the picture, and I hope it doesn't happen to any of you, but if it does, there's no better way to paint the picture of the gospel than to demonstrate love and mercy and kindness, genuine from the heart, towards someone who despises you, takes advantage of you, ruins your name, and you are able to see above and beyond all that and extend love and forgiveness and mercy and kindness. That's exactly what God does for us through the gospel. Okay? But I think probably many of you have seen an example of that. And it is pretty remarkable. They're few and far between, unfortunately. So this is what you'll see in the text. So Cadalasso, I mentioned um, using the BDAG as a lexicon. And a lexicon basically does the work that you and I have been doing all along. We're, we're figuring out what these words mean to help us better understand it. So it's a... I guess a compound word or maybe a prefix, kata, prefix, Cody, compound. It stands alone often. All right. It's preposition. Huh? It's a preposition technically. Preposition technically, yeah. So this word or these two words form this word, right? And so kata means towards something or down upon something. And alas means that which is different in type or kind from other entities in comparison, another or different. So you're moving toward, down upon, difference, and they translate that as reconciled relationship. 
Okay? Here's you an example. I got two verbs and nouns here. For if while we were enemies, there's your who we were before Christ. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through Christ, through whom we have now received the noun form, the reconciliation. Okay? So let me ask you some questions about that. I don't know where my questions went. I had them on here. But anyway, I'll figure out what they were. So, who have you been reconciled to? To God. Through what means? The death of His Son. So in other words, it's the cross that brings you back into the relationship with God and that alone accomplishes that. Okay? Who were you before Christ? Somebody. Who? Enemies. That's really hard for us to process, right? Because we don't consider ourselves as enemies. But the Word of God in more places like Ephesians 2, right, Brad? Communicates the idea that we were enemies of God. And the reason is because we were our own God. Right? We operated according to our own wisdom, our own system of beliefs. And so we refused to submit to our Heavenly Father, and therefore we were rebels. We were enemies who have now been restored in a perfect relationship through the death of His Son. Now really... It's a passive verb, so it means it had nothing to do with... Yeah, I was about to ask you that. So... Um, Yeah, these are all what we call divine passives. God, God did all this. You didn't do any of this, okay? These are wonderful little verbs. And it, I mean, you can read that in there, though, because it has nothing to do. It's all reconciled to God. How? Through the death of His Son. <laughs> nothing to do with me. You're, you're not even mentioned in this equation. You're just the recipient of all that God has done. So this is something, these are the kind of things that I think is cool. So in English, we got verb tenses, right? Past, present, and future, okay? In Greek, you have an aorist tense, which has no, it, it's not concerned with time. All of our verbs in English are concerned with time, past, present, future. In Greek, they have an aorist tense. It doesn't, care, it doesn't care about time. It only cares about what has been accomplished. It's not worried about the time. So in other words, these being an aorist tense, we were reconciled. You can look back at the cross and say, yeah, but it's, it's past tense. No, the focus is just on the work that has been accomplished. That's all the writer wants you to see. You were reconciled through Calvary, period. Period. You know, we could get into theology here, and I'll ask you that question if you all want to delve into that the next time we meet, but this is the accomplishment of your salvation. This is not making salvation available to you. This is what God has done for His people. He has 
reconciled you. Everything that you have and everything that you are is solely because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. You get to heaven and you'll realize it fully and finally, I hope we all will. Everything I ever received, I have received through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every blessing, every circumstance, everything God has done, He has done for you in Christ. He is all that we have. And we have everything that God has because we have the Son. All right? It's really hard to... It's really hard to get your mind around this because in reconciliation, which we always, always, I'll always press you toward if I find you unreconciled. And Jeremy's pressed me a few times toward it. He's had to step in and press me toward that too. And I was really thankful for that. But in reconciliation, we always think of two parties, right? Two parties need to work together to, to accomplish this. But that's not the gospel. It is one party as we stood with our backs to God worked it all out and brought us to himself. Okay? We, hadn't, we had utterly no part in this. It really is amazing. The gospel is, we just, I just don't have the words to explain how glorious this thing is, what God has done for us. All right, here's you some. 2 Corinthians 5. Now all these things are from God. There you go. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. And then he has committed to us the word of reconciliation Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And I would add that last verb is still in the passive voice. It looks like something you do, but it's passive. It's still not something you do. That's the gospel we preach. It's the gospel we've been saved by. And we're simply declaring the works of God. That's it. Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself God might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Now, this one's going to take a little more thought because there's two reconciliations that have taken place through the gospel. The first one we know is with God. What's the other reconciliation? Jews and Gentiles, what's the enmity? What's the barrier? The law. 
So, just stay with me for just a second. God blessed the Jews with a great many things. What's the greatest thing He ever did for them? He gave them the law. The Jews didn't have that. I mean, the Gentiles didn't have that. So when the gospel comes, God breaks down the barrier of the dividing wall and He makes both Jew and Gentile one new man and He reconciles that man to God, right? So specifically, contextually, He's speaking about Jews and Gentiles. Let me ask you something. Does this have any application to social justice? What does the gospel cause among the church? What happens with us? We're made one in Christ. So if you're going to take on the issue of social justice, how would you do that? You preach the gospel. Because through the gospel, we're both made one in Christ. Now, that's a bit moving away from the context of that, but we still see the unity in that. Cody? No comment? I mean, I, I see no social justice. God's going to look at us and go, you're all sinners. It ain't got nothing to do with it. Black, white, yellow, brown. Ain't, I don't care about that, John. Right. So. And he, he, through the gospel, he doesn't. I mean, that's it. That's the unifying thing. So if you're concerned with that, the greatest thing you'll do is preach the gospel. Because once you come to faith in Christ, you've been made one with Christ, and we've been made one with each other. I think y'all know, but our experiences, Paige and I's experiences as we've moved and been put in similar situations, y'all are a lot more than family to us. I mean, y'all have no idea how much y'all mean to us. And I think the feeling's mutual. <laughs> Maybe. But I mean, really, we sense the work of God in our hearts. And, and we've seen it among us. And that's the, exactly what the gospel is supposed to accomplish. And what's super frustrating for me is to see brothers divided who I know that they're in Christ. That... That breaks my heart. When my whole world came crumbling down, how long? How many years ago was that when the Together for the Gospel crumbled? Oh, wrecked my whole world. 2018, yeah. Yeah, I was recovering from cancer surgery, lying in bed, watching a conference, and I saw men that I deeply respected got into an argument during the conference, and I was just like, what in the world? And they split ways. Absolutely broke my heart. I mean, it was terrible because the gospel has made us one, right? And so certainly with among brothers and sisters in Christ, reconciliation should be the flag that we just run around here all with all the time. We, we have to pursue reconciliation because God has given us that in Christ. All right, I got away from it a little bit. Let me get back. Colossians 1.19, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in His Son and through His Son to reconcile, same word, all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's been a lot more reconciled than we even understand. 
What God did on the cross fixed creation. It didn't just fix broken humanity. It fixed creation. It reconciled everything to God. Now, I know some of you are probably struggling with part of this passage. And going back through it, I started struggling with it again. What's the problem with this passage? What's the struggle? There is no problem. The problem's with me. What's the difficult phrase in this passage? All things. Which implies what? Universality. Universality. Yeah. So how do you take this passage and relate it to those who'll spend eternity away from God and what relate and how in what sense are they reconciled to God? I'll say that it's not necessarily every human being, but the issue of sin. Okay. He has a remedy for that. Right. I would say that all injustices are being dealt with through the cross, in that anything that, that we perceive as an injustice or something that's wrong mm-hmm. is being made right through the cross, and that all sin is being paid for. As long as y'all understand you're running to the theology to answer that question, I don't disagree with what you said. But grammatically, the struggle and the tension's there. And it'll be the same tension when we see the cross atoning for the sins of the whole world. It's the exact same tension in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think. I think we think of it as only humans were affected by sin. Right. All of creation. All of creation. But nonetheless, who are we reconciled to? To God, the Father. And how did He accomplish the reconciliation? Through the cross. And there's an interesting word that we haven't talked about here that He introduces in this passage. What do we have with God now? Peace. Which is kind of frightening. Did you ever think of yourself before you were saved as not being at peace with God? Being at opposition? At war. war. That's the picture. Being at war with God. I don't think people think like that anymore. And certainly it's not communicated from the pulpit. But if you haven't turned from your sins and put your faith in Christ, you're at war with God. That's terrifying. Right. 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 Yeah. That's why all those theories of atonement that we kind of toyed around with last week, I think, removes the wrath of God because people don't want to think of themselves as not being at peace with a loving God. But that's only accomplished through the cross. All right. This has got an. Uh, this gives us the purpose for our reconciliation. Colossians 1.21 Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's where you were, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Again, you see who we were before Christ. Again, you see that it was God who has done this work. You see through what means He has accomplished it, the death of Christ, 
But now we're introduced to the purpose of your reconciliation. And what is that? It's in the passage. To be presented to God as holy and blameless. And again, we run aground. I can't explain that. I have no, I mean, you're going to stand before God blameless, beyond reproach, because of the significance of His Son. That is really amazing. You know, when we get in an argument with somebody, we always like to defend our innocence, you know, defend the things that we've done and all this stuff. Yeah, we always fight for the fact in an argument that we are the ones that are doing right. But when you stand before God in the judgment, you'll understand <laughs> you never were in the right, but yet through the Christ, through the work of Christ, you're beyond reproach. You're blameless. You're spotless. And it's really, you're holy. You know, this is actually a Catholic comparison that I've read in Catholic literature before. But if you'll remember Adam and Eve, you remember how Eve came about? Somebody give me the rundown. Oh, come on, guys. The rib thing? The rib thing. Okay, we'll stay with the rib thing. That sums it up. What did Adam say? <laughs> what, Tyler? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And, and what was Adam doing before God did this? Before then? Naming animals. Naming By animals. Himself. What? By himself. By himself. No helper. No helper. But what did he notice in the naming of the animals? There was no one. There was no one suitable for him. There was no one suitable here. No one like him. And it's interesting to me, and I, I just, I'm not, this is not theology. I'll just make the connection for you. It's interesting to me that through the death of Christ, we've been made like him. In every way. And it's the only way that he could accomplish us being made holy. Because he did the entirety of his work. And now we are like God through the work of Christ. In the sense that we are holy. It's, it's really amazing. So I guess before the cross, God looked at us as all possums. And then after the cross, he looks at us as if we were made in the likeness of his son. All right, so Zimic says this. And again, you have to read these things that he says like 12 times, but most fundamentally at, at the root of it, okay, the reconciliation dimension of Christ's atonement on the cross has to do with the establishment of peace between man and God. Now concerning this operation of grace, God is always the subject, man is always the object, and Christ is always the means. That never changes in Scripture. God always does the work. We always are receiving God's work, and Christ is how He has done it all through the cross. All right, let me give you uh, two little... Prepositions. 
these are a little bit different. And these are very contested. So you've got the word or prefix anti, and then you've got the second one, huper. Anti always, almost always, is translated instead of. Huper is usually translated on behalf of. And when you see these work out theologically, you understand atonement a lot better. Okay, believe it or not. So here we go. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horn. Abraham went and took the ram and offered up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. See that? All you've got there in the Septuagint is the word ante, sitting all by itself. So rather than offering up his son, and you know, Abraham was about to take the life of his son, and God provided a ram, and it clearly communicates he took the ram in place of his son. Okay? You got Genesis 44. Therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up and take his brothers. I meant to look. So who is this? What's the context of this? Joseph. Do you remember the brother? Can't. Was it Reuben? Who did this? No, Miss Judah. C, do you remember this? Judah did, Judah did it. Yeah. Judah tried to stay so that Benjamin could go back home. Judah tried to stay so Benjamin could go back home. Is that right? I think so. I forgot to look it up. Whatever. But you get the picture. The older brother said, let me stay instead of my son or my younger brother and let my younger brother go home to his dad. So again, you see this word anti. I'm here on, on behalf of him or instead of him. Okay? So look that up. Numbers 3. Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb, among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine. That's where he translated the firstborn into just now the Levites. And then you come to this passage. And you start to see this word take off in the New Testament. If I can get it back. It won't let me do it. Here we go. All right. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life instead of many a ransom. That's how it's communicated in the text. So it was literally his life. Can you see red okay? Instead of, you've got the word, instead of many. He gave his life instead of many. Again, it's communicating Christ died for us, right? And he did it by the payment of a ransom. Here's another one. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died. This is the word huper. We change words now. Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. For one will hardly die on behalf of a righteous man, though perhaps on behalf of the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on behalf of us. 
So this is the word Christos, and it's Christ. This is our word who pair on behalf of. This is plural, us. And then you have this on the end. Christ on behalf of us died. That is mountaintop theology, right? Because he died in our place. So, I mean, this is communicated throughout Scripture. And again, if you understand this, it shapes every part of your life. Once you come to terms with the fact that God sent His Son to die for Joey, or God sent His Son to die for Brad, and you let that sink into your heart, it will change how you live your life. In fact, he tells us that in just a second. I'll wait till we get there. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him on behalf of us all, or delivered him over on behalf of us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself on behalf of me. So let me ask you some questions about this. How does Paul live? He doesn't. What? He says, it is no longer I who live. Exactly. So what does that mean by way of application? What does that mean? Now I want you to go theological and he won't go theological. <laughs> Nathan, help him. Sorry. I would say he lives in Christ, totally dependent on Christ. Why? What's his reason for doing that? That's not true. It says Christ lives in me. <laughs> theological. Okay, I'm sorry, Nathan. <laughs> yeah, it's been hard these last 10 years. <laughs> Why does he do that? Because of what Christ has done. Which is? There's actually two here. I'm surprised y'all didn't. So what's the motivation for how Paul lives his life? Reckless abandonment for the glory of Christ. What's the motivation? He gave himself up for me. So does your life reflect that truth? That's what I'm trying to whittle us down to. Let me answer that for you. Probably not as much as you like, but you do realize that's well within your grasp. Through fervent prayer and commitment to live for the glory of Christ, your reason for that is because he loved you and gave himself up for you. And now in him you have life. True life, right? Uh, 
Hebrews 2, who pair again, We do not see him who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So this is what we've got. On behalf of all, death experienced. I just think it's a unique way Paul communicated that. On behalf of all, he experienced death for us. John 11. Do you take into account that it's expedient for you that one man die on behalf of the people rather than the whole nation perish? Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us. There's our word Latruo. From the curse of the law, having become a curse on behalf or for us. As it stands written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And 2 Corinthians 5.15 He died for all, on behalf of all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Alright, you all have to memorize that passage for next week. Oh, you got two weeks because we don't have class next week. So let me see if I can probably have to get help here. And on behalf of all died. Here's why. So that those who have life, there's your word for life, might no longer... This is this word. Cody and I were talking about this word beforehand. No longer for themselves live. I didn't spell it right. That's okay. You see this word right here? That's a very strong adversative. But rather instead. It's very emphatic. But rather instead on behalf of on behalf, right here, of him who died and rose. So, on behalf of all, he died, so that those who have life in him would no longer live for themselves, on the contrary, but rather live for him who died and rose again. So in other words, it's not just for Paul. If you were hoping all that stuff was just for Paul, it's not for Paul. It's actually command given to us. Paul instructs the church, this is who you now live for. You live for his sakes and his glory. Now what I would like for you to do is just put the filter of everything you do through that truth. And that will require a lot of repentance and prayer. But we live in light of that truth, right? We live on behalf of the one who died and rose again. Because... He died on our behalf. Okay, so we're done with this as far as soteriology words. But let's just say we took all the theological words away, all the verbs, all that stuff I've showed you, and that's not in the Bible. Let's just say all those wonderful passages that we've just gone over for, I don't know, the last four, four or five, six weeks about soteriology wasn't in there. 
and someone wants to argue about the death of Jesus, you still got a lot of things to deal with. I mean, just look at this statement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, you know, if you didn't understand all those words and all that theology, you still got to deal with little phrases like this that clearly point to the fact that Christ died for our sins in our place. He was the Lamb of God, right? And there's a lot of phrases like that. I could have listed a lot of other things, right? So it's all over the Bible. And the reason that's so important and the reason that you need to communicate your, to your kids that truth is because that truth motivates everything else. Everything else. It, it should direct our worship when we sing. It should affect the, the prayers that we pray. It certainly should change how we live. That affects everything that Christ died for you. Okay? And that's the part that they want to take away with all the theories and doctrines. And you can listen to a man preach if you spend enough time in this and go, he doesn't believe in that essential doctrine that Christ died in my place. And it comes out in his preaching. Okay? Absolutely comes out in his preaching. 